Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Our guest is Zeb Orenstein. My wife had the privilege of meeting him a number of years ago. We've known him. Uh, he, he was one of the most exuberant hosts when he took us to a special site in Israel. And this is a phenomenal site that only in the last few years, I don't know, the last 10 or 15 years or so, has even been discovered and is the in the in actually being archaeological digging on it right as we speak right now. And that's the city of David. Zeb Orenstein, I'm so happy to have you on. Tell us about this stunning discovery and bring us up to speed on what's happening at the city of David. So in order to understand the significance of the city of David, we first have to understand that for most people, when they close their eyes and they imagine biblical Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of King David, King Solomon, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, most people will imagine the old city of Jerusalem. And until about 150 years ago, that's universally what people thought. Until 1867, when Queen Victoria of England, she wants to discover the treasures of the Bible, like the Ark of the Covenant. And so she sends a man by the name of Captain Charles Warren to the Holy Land to find the treasures of the Bible. And if you're going to go to the Holy Land to find those treasures, you'll go to Jerusalem. And if you're going to search one place in Jerusalem, you'll go to the biblical Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, the site where the book of Genesis tells us the binding of Isaac took place, the spot where King David's son Solomon would build the temple, which is why Mount Moriah becomes known as the Temple Mount. And Charles Warren wants to excavate the Temple Mount, except in 1867, the Ottomans, the Muslims are controlling the area. And they tell Charles that they're sure he's a great guy, but he's not going to dig up the Temple Mount. So Charles Warren can't go home to the queen empty-handed. So he says, if I can't excavate Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, I'll excavate near it. He comes down the slopes of Mount Moriah, walks through the Kidron Valley uh, just below, and he ends up making a discovery, which leads to other discoveries, and it leads him to coming up with a theory. And the theory is that the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, is not to be found inside the walls of the old city, but it's to be found just outside the walls of the old city. The only problem with that was in 1867, when Charles Warren announces this theory to the world, everyone thinks he's crazy. Because they look at the city of David, and it's a barren 11-acre ridge. There's nothing there. They say, Charles, everyone knows biblical Jerusalem is the old city. Charles Warren says, I'm telling you, this is the spot, the city of David. This is where biblical Jerusalem was. And it turns out over the next 150 years that he was, in fact, correct. That today, the city of David, just south of the Temple Mount, located just uh, adjacent to the western wall, outside the walls of the old city, everyone knows today that the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, is biblical Jerusalem, one of the most excavated sites in the world, the most excavated site in all of Israel. Uh, and today you're literally able to walk in a place where the kings of the Bible ruled, where the prophets of the Bible preached, and see that when you're in the place where the Bible happened, the words of the Bible come to life. That is, that's remarkable. That's a part of the story I had never heard before. Now, so give us a feel for how large the Temple Mount area uh, can you describe that in, in acres to us? I know you don't use acres, but the, it, what, about what size is that? It's a large area. Yeah, so the Temple Mount itself is, is multiple football fields. The Temple Mount is uh, is quite large. Uh, it was expanded during the time of, of King Herod, around the time of Jesus. Uh, Herod expanded the Temple Mount, made it much, much larger than the original Temple Mount was. Uh, and the city of David, located just, uh, just below, is about 11 acres in size, which, you know, uh, for our friends in Texas, you probably have driveways about about that size, uh, but it's a it's 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 quite a significant eleven acres. It's perhaps the most significant uh, half mile in the world, 
Uh, and one of the reasons for that goes back to uh, around the time of 2004, when at the southern end of the city of David, there was a sewage pipe and the sewage pipe burst. And so now the municipality of Jerusalem has to send in construction crews to repair the sewage pipe. But Jerusalem is not just another municipality and the city of David is not just another part of Jerusalem. And here in the city of David, when a sewage pipe bursts, you don't only send in construction crews, you also send in archaeologists. And so the archaeologists are supervising and you have the bulldozers and dump trucks doing their work. And the archaeologists begin to hear scraping and scratching. It doesn't sound right. So they clear everyone out. And it turns out that in repairing the sewage pipe, they had inadvertently uncovered a series of ancient stone steps, 2,000 years old. And they realized that they had uncovered the steps leading down to the ancient pool of Siloam. Again, these are steps that went back to the time of Jesus. Now, what is the Pool of Siloam? Of course, uh, in the Christian scriptures, it's a place that has a lot of significance. Uh, and the Bible tells us there are three times during the year when all of Israel would have to go on pilgrimage up to the temple on the Temple Mount. We're talking about Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, when all of Israel would have to cleanse themselves before going up to the temple. Now, the historian Josephus says that some 2,000 years ago, say on Passover, you would have had nearly 3 million people going on pilgrimage up to the temple. That's a lot of people. The Pool of Siloam was the size of about two Olympic-sized swimming pools, about an acre and a half in size. Uh, it was a massive, massive pool. And what's happening literally uh, as we speak is up in from 2004 until about two weeks ago, we only had access to about 5% of the pool. Uh, now, as of about two weeks ago, we now have access to the entire area uh, that would have been the Pool of Siloam. And now, uh, archaeologists, together with the Israel Antiquities Authority, have already begun excavating uh, the remaining 95% of the Pool of Siloam. And in a few years' time, the entire pool is going to be unearthed. And the exciting thing that we're uh, anticipating is not just uncovering the Pool of Siloam dating back 2,000 years ago to the time of Jesus, uh, but perhaps even finding the original Pool of Siloam, which is seven centuries older than that, dating back to the time of the biblical King Hezekiah, direct descendants of King David. And what happens next is uh, after the archaeologists, after they discover the pool, so the question that they had was, if we know where the Pool of Siloam is, at the southern end of the city of David, and we know where the temple stood on the Temple Mount, uh, half a mile north of the Pool of Siloam, at the top of the city of David, well, then how did the millions of pilgrims get from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the temple atop the Temple Mount 2,000 years ago? And so the archaeologists widened the excavation, and what they end up discovering is a place that uh, you and I visited together, which is the pilgrimage road, the actual road where our ancestors 2,000 years ago, whether you're Jewish or Christian, the actual road that our ancestors walked on when they went on pilgrimage up from the Pool of Siloam to the footsteps of the Temple Mount, the southern steps, the western wall. I call it the biblical superhighway. And in just a few years' time, literally, people will be able to walk in the footsteps of the Bible. You'll be able to visit the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, begin your journey up from the Pool of Siloam all the way along the pilgrimage road and coming out of the footsteps of the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the Southern Steps. Uh, when you describe three million, three million in the city at once? On, on Passover, it, it would have been a very, very busy time. I mean, this is the time of year when the Bible mandates that everyone is coming to, to Jerusalem to offer the Paschal, the Paschal sacrifice. Uh, and not to mention that Josephus talks about that the time uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, the temple was a place to be seen, not only if you were Jewish, but even uh, Gentiles uh, were coming to Jerusalem and coming to see the temple. 
so this was a place of uh, of gathering from people all over the world 2,000 years ago. So the Pool of Salome, which you now have, it's amazing. You just got access to the entire thing. Uh, I've had the privilege of being there and saw the portion you did have access to, but um, so you now have access to all of it. Was, was that a, a ritual cleansing location? Well, yeah, that, it was the largest mikvah or ritual bath in all of Jerusalem uh, 2,000 years ago. Explain mikvah to our listeners. So what that means is is uh, both in the context of going up to the temple, but but even in other areas of, of uh, Jewish worship, uh, there's an idea of a spiritual cleansing. So when a person goes into a mikvah, it's essentially uh, a swimming pool. Uh, it's filled up with water. And you would immerse yourself in this mikvah or ritual bath. And when you would come out, uh, you would become ritually pure. So, again, the idea is it's not a bath. You're not like going with soap and shampoo and like like rubbing off dirt and things like that. Uh, it's more of a spiritual cleansing. Uh, the water in the ritual bath is living water. It's moving water. It has to be rainwater or some other uh, spring, uh, but natural flowing water. Uh, you know, it's not being pumped in by pipes or anything like that. Uh, and you would go in, you'd cleanse yourself, and then you'd be able to go up to the temple uh, in ritual purity. And it's, uh, it's a part of, of uh, Jewish worship, uh, going back to uh, biblical times. Uh, and it's still, in fact, in, in various aspects of, uh, of Jewish ritual worship today, even though we don't have the temple, where the idea of immersing in a ritual bath is still uh, a central part of our faith. Now, this, this pilgrimage road itself only got discovered, I, I think you said, in 2004? Right. As a result of the busted sewage pipe, the archaeologists find the steps leading down to the Pool of Siloam. And once they find the steps leading down to the Pool of Siloam, which are identical to the southern steps, about a half mile to the north, uh, that would have led up to the temple 2,000 years ago, they realize, well, there, there's a connection between the steps leading down to the Pool of Siloam and the southern steps. How then did the millions of pilgrims get from the pool all the way up to the temple? And so they widen the excavation and they begin to find uh, the steps of the pilgrimage road. And, you know, it's an amazing thing that when you're in the place where the Bible happens, the words of the Bible come to life. And I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, in, in the Psalms, from Psalms, uh, the chapters 120 to 134, those 15 chapters of the Psalms, they all begin with the same words, which are a song of ascent. Now, if you're in Texas or California or New York or wherever else, you probably understand those words to mean a spiritual ascent. You're going to Jerusalem, to the temple. It's holy. You're going up in spirituality and in holiness, which is true. But what would people sing those specific uh, songs of ascent, those chapters of the Psalms? And the answer is when they were ascending to the temple. And anyone who has walked along the pilgrimage road coming up from the Pool of Siloam, as you have, you'll know that you are actually physically ascending. You are ascending a half mile uphill from the Pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount is what we would call a schlep. You're schlepping a half mile uphill. And therefore, when you're standing on the pilgrimage road in the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, you could actually see that the reason why it's called a song of ascent is not just because it's a spiritual ascent, but it is actually a physical description of the pilgrimage experience going back thousands of years. But there's only one place in the world where you can see that, and that is when you're standing on the pilgrimage road in the city of David. Because when you're in the place where the Bible happens, the words of the Bible come to life. Now, when you say the steps around the pool match the steps of the southern steps, explain to them what you mean by southern steps. So the southern steps are the steps that would have gone up into the temple 2,000 years ago. Uh, the southern steps, uh, if you're familiar with the western wall, so there's also a southern wall. 
Uh, and the steps going up from the south would have been the primary entrance into the temple 2,000 years ago. That in, in temple times, in the time of Jesus, say 2,000 years ago, the majority of people would first cleanse themselves in the Pool of Siloam, in the city of David, and then ascend from the Pool of Siloam up the pilgrimage road, and then go in from the southern steps up into the temple uh, 2,000 years ago. And so the southern entrance was the primary entrance uh, in biblical times, going back thousands of years. And in a few years' time, that entire area, from the Pool of Siloam, through the city of David, along the pilgrimage road, coming out at the southern steps, will all be entirely excavated. And people will literally be able to walk in the footsteps of the Bible, in the footsteps of the pilgrimage experience, going back 2,000 years. And so when you think of the people who come to mind from 2,000 years ago, some of the most significant people, we're talking about the places that they would have been without a doubt. The Pool of Siloam, the Pilgrimage Road, the City of David, the Temple Mount, the Southern Steps. I mean, these are all real places where anyone that you could think of from 2,000 years ago that I imagine everyone who's on this call right now would be inspired by, they were walking in those places on the very same stones that we are unearthing literally as we speak. For those of you listening to the Christian scriptures in Acts chapter 2, we talk about the day of Pentecost and Peter preaching. That would have been on the southern steps. Uh, so they play a very significant role for us uh, as Christians as well. Now, talk to me a little bit, Zeb. The southern steps, as they go up, right now, there's no gate there. You can see there were gates there. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, when were those closed or sealed off? At what point? Because that was, that was the main entrance to it. That's and right. now it's all closed. So they, during, during the Islamic period, they closed off the gates. And in fact, today behind the gates, uh, in an area that's known as Solomon Stables, uh, is in fact one of the largest mosques in the, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, so it's kind of ironic of, of how uh, that has played out. But, uh, but you can still see the remnants of the gates that are there. The steps are still there. Uh, the Temple Mount is still there. Uh, and so uh, you could see exactly where things were 2,000 years ago, say in the time of Jesus. Uh, the pilgrimage road still there. We're excavating it. The pool of Siloam still there. We're excavating it. And, you know, you have today, whether it's in the United Nations or the Palestinian leadership, uh, where there are people who are actively denying Jerusalem's biblical heritage, uh, trying to imply that, uh, that Israel is a colonial power, that Jews and Christians have no heritage in Jerusalem, condemning the archaeological excavations. And of course, the irony is, is that there's perhaps no greater place uh, then the city of David, where you could see not simply as a matter of faith, but as a matter of fact, uh, that Jerusalem's biblical heritage is real. It's true. You could see it. You could touch it. You could walk on it. And I think that's also in part why so many people, uh, whether the United Nations, Palestinian leadership, or the EU or elsewhere, uh, where they're trying to push back on this because they realize what's at stake. Because in a few years time, you are going to have millions and millions of people from all over the world who will literally be able to walk in the footsteps of the Bible, to be able to walk in a place that will bring your faith to life in a meaningful way, uh, in a place that, that brings the Judeo-Christian heritage uh, upon which uh, the United States of America was established, bringing that to life in a very real and tangible way. And when people are denying the heritage of Jerusalem, it's really not just an attack on Israel or the Jewish people, uh, but it's an attack on anyone who feels a connection to Jerusalem's biblical heritage. And it's also an attack on the United States, because again, if the bedrock of the United States is, is the Judeo-Christian heritage, and that heritage has its roots in Jerusalem, which is the city of David. And anyone who is trying to uh, undermine the city of David is, un is really undermining the foundations that uh, the United States of America rests upon. Is, uh, the, when you talked about the ascent, the Psalms of ascent, was were those the Psalms that were said or sung 
as they went from the pool of Bethesda up to the temple? Right, and, right, from the from the pool of Siloam up to the temple. Yeah. And, and uh, yes. And, and what what were the psalm? What are those psalms? What's Psalms number uh, chapter one one twenty one twenty to one thirty four? And so that was customary for, for those on pilgrimage to be singing those psalms mm -hmm. as they went on this particular pathway. That's right. As they're physically ascending. And so you could get the sense of it's not just a spiritual description, but it's actually a physical description of the pilgrimage experience. You are physically ascending as you go up to the temple, not just spiritually ascending. Now, if some of our people who are listening have not been to Israel, uh, they're picturing right now that what you discovered is an open roadway. But this is not. This is literally a tunnel with, uh, with steel girders holding mm -hmm. up what's above it. Uh, explain why that is, explain to them what this looks like, feels like, and then how far below the existing surface of the ground is this tunnel, which I assume was once an open roadway back in the day. You're absolutely right. So 2,000 years ago, the pilgrimage road is under the sky. You're outside, you're, you're walking, uh, you see the sky, the sun, the birds, all that good stuff. Uh, what's happened over time? Uh, over time, Jerusalem has been conquered and reconquered and thrown an earthquake or two in. Uh, one civilization built atop the other, uh, and you eventually find yourself in a situation where uh, biblical Jerusalem is is covered up by many, 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 many layers of of civilization. Now, the way archaeology normally works is you would dig top down and go layer by layer uh, until you get to the primary period of inhabitants. Uh, the challenge in the city of David is you have a modern day mixed Jewish Muslim neighborhood uh, sitting atop the city of David, and so you have the modern neighborhood covering. 4,000 years of Jerusalem's ancient heritage, and the neighborhood's not going anywhere. And so what we have to do in the case, say, of the pilgrimage road is support the modern while uncovering the ancient. And so much of the expense of the pilgrimage road excavation is in the engineering that is supporting the modern day homes and shops and cars and buses that are about 60 feet above where the actual pilgrimage road excavation is taking place. And so when a person uh, visits the pilgrimage road today. It's not open to the public, but you know you've gotten to to see it firsthand uh, that the pilgrimage road today is underground. With you have engineering supports holding up the modern day neighborhood, allowing the excavation of the pilgrimage road of the biblical superhighway uh, to take place. Maybe you answered this already, and I missed it. But the reason is sixty feet. Is is that because of of the destruction, destroying the city, and rebuilding, destroying and rebuilding, destroying, rebuilding? And just built up. Is that the reason? Yeah, that's right. Yes, you have many, many layers that have piled up uh, over time uh, to the point where now, again, you have the modern city uh, and then all these layers going down to where the pilgrimage road is. So where the archaeologists are excavating the pilgrimage road is essentially it's a time capsule going back 2000 years. And when we were there with you, it was not open to the public. Has the pilgrimage road been open to the public yet? Only a very, very small section next to the Pool of Siloam is open to the public. Uh, but the primary area that's being excavated right now is still uh, not yet open. Our hope is in the next couple of years to have a north-south corridor leading from the Pool of Siloam all the way up through the city of David to the footsteps of the Western Wall and the Southern Steps that, God willing, in a couple of years' time will be open to uh, millions of people a year to literally walk in the footsteps of the Bible. Over the last number of years, these Gilgals, or footprints, six of them have been discovered that I'm aware of, around Israel, which they believe at various points as the children of Israel were coming in there, the Ark of the Covenant was there and these were used for worship. So these very significant sort of footprints in the footprint of God, so to speak, uh, on the earth. 
is is there any significance um in the fact that the city of david seems to be shaped almost like a footprint i would say in jerusalem there's significance for everything so i wouldn't say uh that's a coincidence but as far as uh is it meant to resemble a shoe or a footprint? I, I can't say that I could answer definitively one way or the other, but but everything in Jerusalem has has significance. The um, the the architectural, I mean, the archaeological digs are ongoing at the city of David and will go for a long time. That's right. An awful lot to, to dig there. So I've seen them as they're actually working on numerous occasions. Describe to us, if you would, kind of the ongoing nature of it. And then give an example of the city of David, for example, of where they believe Jeremiah uh, was held uh, in, in, in prison there. So tell us a little bit more about ongoing and, and some of the direct ties specifically there with actual biblical figures or biblical passages. So the, the exciting thing about the city of David is that only one third of it to date has been excavated. So even though the city of David is only 11 acres, uh, we've only excavated a third to date, uh, in part because of the complexity of, of being within a modern neighborhood that we have to take into account with the excavations. Uh, but every single day we have ongoing archaeological excavations in, in multiple sites within the city of David that are uncovering Jerusalem's heritage. And as you mentioned, uh, we found uh, excavations that uh, one excavation is believed to have been the site of King David's palace uh, that was unearthed in 2005. Uh, adjacent to that is another site an ancient cistern uh, that some parts of which uh, are believed to date back about two and a half thousand years, uh, which would correspond to the time of Jeremiah. Can we say with absolute certainty this is a, the pit where Jeremiah was cast? Can't say that. Could it have been? Quite, quite certainly. Uh, and so you have that. But the exciting things are you have uh, in these excavations uh, things like little clay seals with the names of biblical figures. So we're talking about uh, two of the four ministers of the biblical king Zedekiah who was the last king of the Davidic dynasty who plotted to kill the prophet Jeremiah. Two of those four ministers, we found their seal impressions in the area of the royal government center of the Davidic dynasty. Uh, archaeologists have found the seal of the biblical King Hezekiah, direct descendants of King David, and next to that, the seal of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, archaeologists have, have discovered uh, discoveries such as the Siloam inscription, which uh, tells the story of the two teams of uh, diggers who were engineering the tunnel during the time of the biblical King Hezekiah to protect Jerusalem's water source from the impending uh, Assyrian invasion uh, by, by King Sennacherib of Assyria. And the list goes on and on. Uh, we found ancient etchings of uh, a menorah, the golden bell, which most likely came from the robe of the high priest. Uh, but really, we could we could talk all day about all these different discoveries, ancient coins with Hebrew writing, the silver half shekel coins that were used as the temple tax uh, during the time of the temple. And every single day, these types of treasures uh, that affirm our shared uh, heritage uh, in, in Jerusalem, uh, they're being unearthed. Uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel, uh, we used to, I haven't in recent years, we used to go through that. Uh, describe Hezekiah's Tunnel. What's the length of that? When, when, when I went, by the way, um, my, my maybe first trip over, second trip, uh, my first trip was go back in 1981, and I was told by the guy, he said, yeah, the water will only be ankle deep. Well, it turned out, unknown to him, the water was considerably higher. It was about here. And you know, at one place in the tunnel, the the, the, the roof, the ceiling comes down. And, and right. it so happened as it was coming down, we were in this tunnel, quite a few of us. Well, we had flashlights, so we had light and stuff. 
but all of a sudden the water, our, our heads had to go lower because the roof, and here was the, here was the sea of stone, and here was the water right here. It was a bit intimidating for a few minutes. It was only about 10 feet or 15 feet. It was like that. <laughs> but other time I went through and it, it water was not nearly, nearly that high. Now, in recent years, we don't go through it for various reasons that you maybe can describe. But, but Hezekiah's tunnel, am I correct? It was known about it well before the discovery of where the city of David was. Am I correct on that? So the uh, Hezekiah's tunnel is about 533 meters in length. It dates back about 2,700 years uh, to the time of the biblical King Hezekiah, direct descendant of King David, who engineers this tunnel to protect Jerusalem's water source uh, from the impending Assyrian invasion. Now, uh, today the water in the tunnel goes about uh, about mid mid thigh on on me, you know, about five foot uh, five foot ten or so. Uh, so not quite as high as uh, as, as once upon a time. Uh, but uh, the city of David today, you're able to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, literally walk uh, through that tunnel, the same one from from thousands of years ago. And that tunnel, people have known about that tunnel easily for, for well over a century, probably about 150 years, if not longer. Uh, the significance of the tunnel was probably not known until uh, probably about the 1880s or so when the Siloam inscription was found within the tunnel, uh, which tells the story of, of the engineering of the tunnel. Uh, but, but I'd say the tunnel itself has been known for centuries. And the ironic thing is the Siloam inscription actually today is sitting in the Istanbul uh, archaeology museum in Turkey that because it was discovered in the late 1800s during the Ottoman period uh, they took it back to Istanbul with them and Israel uh, including efforts by uh, Prime, Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu have they've made efforts to get this thing back they've pretty much offered any Islamic treasure that Israel has in the Israel Museum or any of our collections to trade it for the Siloam inscription uh, but Turkey will not give it up for the reason that there is probably uh, that Siloam inscription is one of the most significant uh, pieces of antiquity that clearly affirms Jerusalem's biblical heritage. And because Turkey understands the significance of what that would represent, uh, they are not willing to uh, give it up. Now, it would verify the fact that this, this was Jewish, Jewish territory, and they don't want to, they don't want to acknowledge that. Uh, the engineering of that particular tunnel, is this the same tunnel? Is this the same tunnel through which David and his warriors came? To, con to to take over the Jebusite city? So it, it wouldn't have been the same tunnel because uh, David is a couple of centuries before Hezekiah. So the tunnel specifically that the water's flowing through uh, is not uh, from the time of David, but there is an adjacent tunnel where the Gihon Spring would have originally flown through uh, before the time of Hezekiah, uh, which would have likely been the, the, the tunnel that Joab uh, and his forces would have used to penetrate uh, Jerusalem, the city of David, secretly and conquer the spring and then conquer the fortress uh, and then conquer the city. So we have that tunnel. Uh, we could almost almost certainly walk in the footsteps of how David conquered uh, the Canaanite city, the Jebusite city, thousands of years ago, uh, the original uh, Navy SEAL expedition uh, taking place in the city of David. <laughs> and, and the engineering of Hezekiah's tunnel, they started from opposite ends, correct? That's right. And then almost went past each other, right? Right. So there, it's interesting. They don't go in a straight line. Uh, they don't have GPS. They don't have radar. So they have to find a way somehow uh, to meet in the middle. And so what they're doing is essentially going like in an S, curving back and forth with the hopes that that would increase the likelihood that they would connect somewhere. And even 
even with that uh, technique, there was no guarantee that it would work. And, and it's so it's still one of the great uh, mysteries of, uh, of the ancient world that scholars have yet to figure out exactly how the two teams were able to meet in the middle. Uh, you can call it good fortune. You can call it providence. Uh, you can call it something else maybe, but uh, the fact that they met in the middle uh, was nothing short of a godsend because uh, there was certainly no guarantee that that was going to happen. Going back to the city of David and uh, specifically uh, like the walls, am I, on the east side, say a word about this. On the east side, uh, if I remember correctly, at the very lowest point, you could actually see the stones of the wall from the Jebusite area, era. Sure. And, and then from the time of David, uh, built upon that, say a little bit about that, because that's a very, to me, that's a very intriguing wall right there. Because boy, it goes back, David goes back 3,000 years. The Jebusites go back way before that. Yeah, so you, you could see the original Canaanite walls that surrounded the city, that when the Canaanites in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, they're boasting. They're saying to David and his forces, we could put blind our blind and lame uh, on the walls of the city, and you still will not be able to conquer the city. We have those walls. I mean, these are massive walls. Uh, the Kijron Valley uh, was much, much deeper than it is today. And so David would have been looking up at a uh, walls in a fortress that, that were probably about seven stories tall. And so the question then before David was, how is he going to conquer a city that for 400 years prior to David, no one was able to conquer with these massive walls and fortresses uh, protecting the city? Uh, it was really a monumental uh, act for David to conquer Jerusalem uh, all those thousands of years ago. Again, doing it without, uh, you know, without the types of weaponry that we would take for granted today, David had to find a way to conquer a heavily fortified uh, and very, very well-protected city with only a handful of men. Why did he, of all the cities that would have been around there, uh, why this city? Why this location? So David is, is many things. David is a poet. He writes the Psalms. David is a warrior. Uh, he defeats Goliath. Uh, but David is also uh, a politician. And when David first becomes king, he's king only over the tribe of Judah. His capital city is uh, Hebron. And then after the passing of Saul, the other tribal elders come to David and say, we want you to be the king over all of us. And David says, okay, sure, it's you know, great to be king. But he realizes if he's going to rule over everyone, he has to have a capital that reflects his rule over the entire nation. And therefore, leaving the capital in Hebron, which is in the heart of Judah, uh, would not be representative of the entire nation, of all the tribes. So David does something, which might sound very familiar to, uh, to everyone who is uh, listening to this which is he understands the need to have a neutral capital. And so Jerusalem actually sits directly between two tribes. It sits directly between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And by picking Jerusalem as his capital, the city of David as his capital, he was essentially saying that he was going to be representing everybody, not just the tribe of Judah, but all of Israel. This may sound uh, familiar in the United States, Washington, D.C. being a neutral capital. Uh, and so David was making a very strategic decision. And of course, even though it was a neutral capital, it was still right next to his tribe, Judah. So that was very clever on his part as well. Uh, the other reason why Jerusalem is chosen as the capital is a spiritual reason, uh, which uh, we have a teaching in our, in our faith that David learns together with the prophet Samuel the significance of Mount Moriah as being the future site where God's presence will rest with the temple, uh, obviously then uh, making Jerusalem particularly significant and making it the place uh, that would be natural uh, to become the capital city of the of the kingdom. 
Uh, so for political reasons, for faith reasons, also the, you have water abundant uh, in that area from the Gihon Spring. Uh, Jerusalem in ancient times is up on a hilltop, uh, which makes it particularly challenging to conquer. So it's a very strategic location. It's relatively in the middle of the, of the country. Uh, so for many, many reasons, uh, David makes that decision. Uh, like I said, he's a warrior. He's a man of faith. He's also a politician. Uh, and so he understood the significance of a place like Jerusalem. And just to underscore what you said earlier, the city of David is kind of on this slope. And then, then the Mount Moriah is right on the north end of it. That's and right. That's where David's son will build the temple uh, at the place uh, where Abraham uh, came to a point of almost sacrificing Isaac. So extremely uh, significant location. In terms of ethnography, do any does any people group exist today who claims to be Jebusites? The no. Of Jebusites? No, no. They went, they became extinct at that point. Or was it a point thereafter? Uh, uh, not not long not long after were the uh, the Canaanites essentially you stop hearing about them in the Bible. Uh, you know, not not long after that period, uh, the Philistines were another ancient pe people from that time. Uh, also, within uh, you know, not that long historically speaking, afterwards uh, they're no longer existent. And it's interesting because you'll have today. You know, let's say the Palestinians, they'll say, well, we're the descendants of the Canaanites or we're the descendants of the Philistines. Now, aside from the fact that both the Canaanites and the Philistines are, are people that don't exist anymore, the interesting thing is we actually know a great deal about ancient Canaanite and Philistine civilization. We know the gods they worship. We know about their culture and their language and all sorts of things that they would do. Uh, and you could ask, uh, you know, Palestinians today, so what, what do you have in common with them? And the answer is obviously nothing. You now go and take a Jewish person and you go back to the time of David, say, and say, well, OK, what would you have in common with David? Well, we worship the same God and speak the same language, have the same customs, traditions, festivals, uh, as King David did 3000 years ago. And the Jewish people today, uh, it's identical. And so uh, there is this continuity uh, between King David and his descendants here uh, in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. It's the same people. It's the same faith. It's the same God. It's the same culture. It's the same traditions. It's the same language. Uh, and you don't have that almost anywhere else in the world. Now, the bottom line for what is being said right here now is that the Jewish people uh, don't occupy the land. They own it. And God declared that. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, I'm just curious, uh, uh, the, take, a, take a moment to describe where the word Palestinian came from. It was a, it was a fairly modern invention. Uh, you say a word about that. So in, in the year 70, the Romans will destroy uh, Jerusalem, the second temple. Uh, and then it, it, there's a whole uh, long period of Roman rule in the area following that. And at various times, there were Jewish uprisings to try and drive out the Romans uh, from Jerusalem and from the country whose name was Judea at the time. The reason why Jews are called Jews, Jews come from Judea. The capital was Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, in the year 71, after the Romans conquer Jerusalem, they mint a coin. Uh, with, on the coin, it says Judea capta. Judea has been captured or defeated. Now, in the years 132 to 135, there was another Jewish uprising, uh, which was a particularly painful one for the Romans, which it took them three years to put down. And at the end of that revolt, it was known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. In 135, the Roman emperor Hadrian, he is so uh, angry, frustrated uh, with this small country and the small people, the Jews in Judea, 
that he wants to take revenge against them. So not only does he exile them from their homeland and raise Jerusalem to the ground, but he decides to change the name of the country. And he changes the name of the country from Judea to Palestina or Palestine is an insult named after the ancient Philistines, who at this point in history are long since extinct, uh, changes the name of Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina, uh, which is named after you know, one of the pagan gods. And the idea there, uh, again, is to break the connection of the Jewish people to the land, that the land is, because if the land is called Judea, even if you exile the people, everyone will know, well, Jews come from Judea. Uh, but if there's no more Judea, if Judea has now been replaced with Palestine, and Jerusalem doesn't exist, it's now called Elia Capitolina, the idea was to sever forever, once and for all, the Jewish people with Jerusalem and with the land of Israel. Uh, and, you know, thankfully, uh, that was not successful, uh, that the connection, the bond that we have to our homeland, to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, uh, was able to endure that. But the idea was uh, a very clever one. And in fact, today, the fact that we're in a conflict with the uh, Palestinians today is is in large part thanks to uh, the Roman Emperor Hadrian uh, and his decision to uh, to rename the the land uh, all those thousands of years ago. The uh, when David went to uh, to go after the Canaanite city, the Jebusite city, he was mocked. He was mocked. Describe a little bit of that mocking, scoffing that went on, making fun of David as if he couldn't possibly take the city. So uh, the city is it was one that for many centuries, from the time that Joshua crosses over. Uh, the Jordan River into the into the Promised Land until David is about 400 years, and throughout this period, the Bible and the Book of Joshua, Judges, Samuel makes it very clear that no one can conquer this Canaanite stronghold. That the city of David, that Jerusalem was was a well fortified city uh, that no one was going to conquer. And when David decides that he wants to make Jerusalem the city of David, his future capital, he has a problem because how is he going to conquer with a handful of men uh, this city that for 400 plus years prior to him no one has been able to conquer. And so in the second, second Samuel chapter five, it recounts how David decides to, to go from Hebron to Jerusalem to try and conquer the city. And the Jebusites, uh, this Canaanite tribe, they're so confident that they are mocking David saying, we could put our blind and our lame on the walls of the city and you still will not be able to conquer it. And, and David acknowledges that they're in fact correct because David does not try to scale the walls of the city or go through them or anything like that. David realizes that if he is going to be able to successfully conquer the city, he's going to have to do it in an unconventional way. And he says, whoever wants to conquer the Jebusite stronghold must strike at the water channel. And what archaeologists uh, today understand is that King David found a subterranean entrance uh, through an irrigation channel into the city. He was able to bypass the walls, kind of go underground. Uh, and once they went underground through that tunnel, they captured the spring, they captured the fortress, take the guards by surprise. And the rest, as they say, is uh, is history. Was it already called Jerusalem or did it have another name at that time? So the, the name Jerusalem already goes back to uh, the time of Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem, that uh, already in the time of Abraham, uh, where Abraham meets with uh, with uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who, who was the priest on high. And already there you see Salem, which is Jerusalem. So you already see the beginnings of this idea of, of a Jerusalem. Uh, the Canaanites, uh, they called this place Jebus, or Jebus. Uh, that's where the Jebusites were. Uh, but as soon as David conquers it, uh, it's renamed the city of David, which is Jerusalem. What other are the most significant discoveries going on right now in the city of David, or most recently in the city of David, that we have not yet covered? So we have 
an excavation right across from the area of the King David Palace excavation. There used to be a parking lot. And we had a dream that one day we were going to put our new visitor center on this parking lot. Uh, but the Israel Antiquities Authority said, well, before you can do anything uh, in terms of a new visitor center, we need to come and scan with ground penetrating radar to make sure that there's nothing exciting beneath the parking lot. And so that's, in fact, what they did. And they came back and they said that we have 10 layers of ancient Jerusalem civilization beneath the parking lot. And so today it's known as the Givati parking lot excavation. It's one of the largest active excavations going on in Jerusalem today, where we've uncovered all these various layers of Jerusalem's heritage going all the way back to first temple period Jerusalem. And one exciting discovery of, of many that was found there is a seal belonging to someone named Nathan Melek, uh, servant of the king. Now, who is Nathan Melek? If you look in 2 Kings 23.11, uh, it talks about uh, Josiah, the biblical king Josiah, and the religious reformation that he is undertaking. And one of the uh, officials of King Josiah is this Nathan Melek. And now uh, this seal represents the first evidence outside of the Bible for the existence of King Josiah and his kingdom. Uh, and so it's a very exciting discovery that, that was found. And you say, you know, wow, like Nathan Melek, who is this guy? But it turns out that even this obscure official of, of the king allows us today to, to see that, uh, not that we have any doubt in terms of a faith perspective, but exciting to see that uh, we have archaeological evidence now uh, affirming the existence of, of someone who the Bible calls, in fact, the most righteous king uh, of biblical times. When, when we're in that archaeological dig, that area that you called the parking lot that's now an archaeological dig, mm -hmm. at the northwest corner, you go down the steps there and you go into a tunnel. The tunnel mm -hmm. goes up or down, and, 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 and everybody who goes there, uh, who wants to, goes through that tunnel and ends up at the uh, along the retaining wall, the, the western wall, the very corner of it there. That's a completely separate tunnel from the pilgrimage pathway you've been describing at the at the beginning of this call, correct? Right, so the pilgrimage road is the road. And imagine today you have beneath um, our modern roads, we have a sewer system, a sewage system. And so the, the drainage channel that you're referring to was beneath the pilgrimage road dating back to the same time period. Uh, and we know that in the, in the period of the destruction of Jerusalem, the last Jews of Jerusalem sought refuge from the Romans beneath the pilgrimage road in that drainage channel. And archaeologists have discovered where the Romans broke open the flagstones of the pilgrimage road and found 2,000 Jews hiding beneath the pilgrimage road in the drainage channel. Uh, archaeologists find remnants of whole cooking pots uh, of the people who were living there for days, for weeks, for months, remnants of uh, a Roman sword and scabbard that were presumably used to kill the last 2,000 Jews of Jerusalem. And all sorts of other uh, ancient treasures have been found in this drainage channel that today, as you mentioned, uh, people are able to literally walk through and come out of the very footsteps, uh, the foundation stones of the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. It, it seems to me, Zeb, I'm not sure on this, but it just seems to me that there's sort of an avalanche of discovery going on right now. An increase, an, an acceleration. This timing is just quite amazing to me. Is there any significance spiritually to this accelerated restoration? That is going so, on. And speaking as an Orthodox Jew, is there any any sense that that's has some spiritual significance? I think if you go back about a hundred years ago, if you looked at what we call the Western world today, Europe, uh, the Americas, uh, most people were Bible believing, God fearing people. Uh, if you look at the world a hundred years later, 
uh, it's different. Uh, Europe is uh, becoming a largely secular nation. Uh, even, you know, the United States for the first time, there was a recent uh, poll showing that less than 50% of Americans are affiliated with the church or synagogue today, the first time in America's history that that's the case. And so there is a almost distancing uh, from the biblical heritage that, that today in society, in Western society, uh, people are mocked for their faith. Uh, you could hardly go to a university campus uh, anywhere in the Western world without having uh, a whole department focused on uh, biblical, biblical criticism. And so what used to be taken for granted, which was the, the significance of, of the word, uh, today is, is, uh, you know, it's not, it's not taken for granted. It's, it's sometimes outrightly mocked and scorned and denied. And so we're living at a time of, on the one hand, unprecedented denial of the biblical heritage, and in many cases, the, uh, biblical heritage specifically of, of Jerusalem, uh, as can be seen in resolutions at the United Nations and, and elsewhere. And yet we're also living in a time of unprecedented archaeological discovery affirming that very same biblical heritage. It's as if like in the book of Deuteronomy, where, where God says, I place before you today life and death, choose life, where God is saying the same thing here, one could say, where there is the denial, but there is also the discovery. And each person is able to freely choose uh, the path that they want to go down to. The information is there. Uh, it's not just that you only have the deniers, you have the deniers, and you have the, all the discoveries that are being made, and everyone can choose for themselves uh, what it is they want to believe, if they want to believe that there's, in fact, uh, no biblical heritage, uh, or that, in fact, there has never been a time more than this one in history where one can see not simply as a matter of faith, but as a matter of fact, uh, the affirmation of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's biblical heritage in a very tangible and physical way. Well, good answer. Good answer. This is the last question. Last question. I've been saving this last question for you for this moment. Are you ready for this one? I'm ready. Tell our audience, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, I'll give you an answer. And the, the answer is there are many places in the city of David where it probably was once upon a time and maybe even uh, when it went into hiding that are connected to various sites in the city of David. But I'll, I'll tell you this. I do not believe that the Ark of the Covenant will be found until it is meant to go into the place where it's meant to be. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is not a prop. It's not going to sit in the Israel Museum or the British Museum or the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. It's not going to be this thing where people are going to come and take selfies next to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant has a very specific purpose. Uh, it's where God's presence rests in the Holy of Holies uh, in the temple. Uh, and until, if and when, uh, there will be a temple one day atop the Temple Mount uh, in the future, then I believe that the Ark of the Covenant will be in the Holy of Holies. Uh, but until that day comes, uh, I don't believe the Ark of the Covenant will be found, nor do I even believe it should be searched for. Because again, the Ark of the Covenant is not a prop. It's not a toy. It's not a gimmick. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, is, it is what it is. Uh, and that's what it should, that's what it should be. And, uh, and therefore, I don't think, and again, this is me speaking personally, not in the, any capacity related to the city of David, uh, but I, I don't think it will be found until, uh, until it's needed. I've asked that question of a lot of people. That's the best answer I have ever heard. That is, that is very good. Website. What website can they go to to uh, learn more? And of course, if they're traveling to Israel, by all means, folks, you got to go to the city of David. Uh, they just don't miss that. That's really worth your time. But Tell us about the website they can go to or any if you want to recommend 
any if they want to purchase some books, some material on this to follow up, tell them about that. So if you go to uh, cityofdavid.org.il slash en, you can get to our English website. Oh, re repeat, uh, that, repeat that one more time. By the way, IL is for Israel. Right. And then, and then forward slash, right, forward slash EN. www.cityofdavid.org.il forward slash EN. That will give you the English website. Uh, if you go to YouTube, put in City of David, Ancient Jerusalem, we have tons of great video content with all our discoveries. If you go to any social media platforms at City of David, you'll get all of our content there. And, and that, those are the best places to connect with us. And as you said, the best thing to do is to uh, come and see all these things for yourself, to literally walk in the footsteps of the Bible. Uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that you could you could read the word in America or, or wherever else that, that people may be on this call from. Uh, but when you're in the place where the Bible happened, the words of the Bible come to life. And it's not something you can get uh, anywhere else. Zev Ornstein, I'm just so grateful to you. When, when my wife and I, uh, it seems like Congresswoman Michelle Bachman was with us. You took the That's three right. of us on the pilgrimage uh, pathway. And, and to watch you describe this, it, it was just infectious. You just engaged our hearts so much. Uh, I could tell your excitement for it. And it really generated a lot of excitement. But we realized the significance of where we were standing. Uh, some of the most important place to ever stand anywhere in Israel is on that pilgrimage pathway. And uh, as he's indicated, a small portion is open now to the public. Make sure you, uh, when you go, by the way, come to Israel with us. We go in May. You can go to wellversedworld.org and click on, uh, click on tours and you'll find the trip to Israel. And my wife will be back in touch with you, but you need to go because we always go to the city of David. I can't promise you're going to get to have a personal guide, a tour by, by, by Zev himself, but you've given it today. Zev, I'm so grateful for you. Let me ask this final, I said final question a few moments ago. Is there any question I should have asked that I failed to ask you? Well, I'll, I'll ask you a question that, that uh, I have failed to ask you, which is, the last time I got to host you was, I think, pre-COVID. So a lot that's been discovered since then. So my question to you is, uh, when is uh, round two of, uh, of our next tour to the city of David? We were just there in October, but didn't connect with you. We will be back in May. My wife's saying something around the corner. Can we connect with him? I'm sorry? Well, bottom line is, when we, we'll come in May, and we want to connect with you again at that point. So Great. we'll, we'll get you to states. We were there and it was wonderful. We took our group through, but it wasn't the same without Zep. So we will we will connect with you when we get back there in May, my brother. Thank you to it. so much. And, and now, folks, we're going to go to prayer. And what's our prayer assignment? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What a the, the epicenter of the globe is Jerusalem. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to 
wellversedworld.org.